I just find that uh, since the last few months there's, there's such complete exhaustion by the end of the day that I feel um, quite run down and not fully able to give to the story that I want to give, uh, which is the reason why I haven't been recording uh, so many in the first instance, but as I promised you all, I'm going to change that. So here's me again. going to be a series that I'm going to uh, record and this particular episode is dedicated to a very, very, very dear friend called Sonia. Sonia, I know you've been a little early um, and I also have uh, the privilege of knowing that Of animals uh, and the sort of genetics of animals uh, and 
I'm looking at the revolution, but also just making children guide their parents in everything. So, without further ado, we're going to start off with the first story we are going to read today is The Elephant's Child. The Elephant's Child from the Just So Stories that tells us how the elephant got its trunk. The young elephant hero is full of questions. Why is his tall uncle the giraffe so spotty? Why are the eyes of his broad aunt the hippopotamus so red? to know what the crocodile has for dinner and in the end we learn how the elephant got his trunk. The Elephant's Child In the high and far off times the elephant, oh best beloved, had no trunk. He had only a blackish bulgy nose as big as a boot that he could wriggle about from side to side but he couldn't pick up things with it. But there was one elephant, a new elephant, an elephant's child, who was full of satiable curiosity, and that means he asked ever so many questions. And he lived in Africa, and he filled all Africa with his satiable curiosities. He asked his tall aunt, the ostrich, why her tail feathers grew just so. And his tall aunt, the ostrich, spanked him with a hard, hard claw. He asked his tall uncle, the giraffe, what made his skin spotty. And his tall uncle, the giraffe, spanked him with his hard, hard claw. And still he was full of satiable curiosity. He asked his broad aunt, the hippopotamus, why her eyes were red, and his broad aunt, the hippopotamus, spanked him with her broad, broad hoof, and he asked his hairy uncle, the baboon, why melons tasted just so, and his hairy uncle, the baboon, spanked him with his hairy, hairy paw. And still, he was full of satiable curiosity. He asked questions about everything that he saw, or heard, or felt, or smelt, or touched, and all his uncles and his aunts spanked him. And still, he was full of satiable curiosity. One morning, in the middle of the procession of the equinoxes, the satiable elephant's child asked a new, fine question that he had never asked before. He asked, what does the crocodile have for dinner? Then everybody said, hush, in a loud and dreadful tone, and they spanked him immediately and directly, without stopping for a long time. Oh my good grief, boys and girls. Can you imagine spanking you guys in this day and age? We'd be in, I don't know, in a, in a very awful place if people knew that we had done something like that. But it was very normal at the time because obviously it wasn't like a slap. A spank is a very um, a gentle <laughs> kind of cute slap. Not slap. A gentle touch, shall we say. A not so gentle touch but done in a um, fun way. Right, okay, since I'm just digging a hole for myself, I'm not going to say any more. But suffice it to say that spank is not necessarily a bad thing. By and 
by, when that was finished, he came upon Kolo Kolo Bird sitting in the middle of a wait-a-bit thorn bush. And he said, My father has spanked me and my mother has spanked me. All my aunts and uncles have spanked me for my satiable curiosity. And still I want to know what the crocodile has for dinner. Then Kolo Kolo Bird said with a mournful cry, Go to the banks of the great grey green, greasy Limpopo River, all set about with fever trees, and find out. That very next morning, when there was nothing left of the equinoxes, because the procession had proceeded according to precedent, this satiable elephant's child took a hundred pounds of bananas, the little short red kind, and a hundred pounds of sugarcane, the long purple kind, and seventeen melons, the greeny crackly kind, and said to all his dear families, Goodbye! I'm going to the great grey green greasy Limpopo River, all set about with fever trees to find out what the crocodile has for dinner. And they all spanked him once more for luck, although he asked them most politely to stop. Then he went away, a little warm, but not at all astonished, eating melons and throwing the rind about because he could not pick it up. He went from Grahamstown to Kimberley, and from Kimberley to Karma's country, and from Karma's country he went east by north, eating melons all the time, till at last he came to the banks of the great grey green greasy Limpopo River, all set about with fever trees, precisely as Kolo Kolo Bird had said. Now, you must know and understand, O oh best beloved, that till that very week and day and hour and minute, this satiable elephant's child had never seen the crocodile and did not know what one was like. It was all his satiable curiosity. The first thing that he found was a bi-coloured python rock snake curled around a rock. Excuse me, said the elephant's child most politely, but have you seen such a thing as a crocodile in these promiscuous parts? Have I seen a crocodile? said the bicoloured python rock snake in a voice of dreadful scorn. What will you ask me next? Excuse me, said the elephant's child. But could you kindly tell me what he has for dinner? Then the bicoloured python rock snake uncoiled himself very quickly from the rock and spacked the elephant's child with his scalesome, flailsome tail. That is odd, said the elephant's child, because my father and my mother and my uncle and my aunt, not to mention my other aunt, the hippopotamus, and my other uncle, the baboon, have all spanked me for my satiable curiosity, and I suppose this is the same thing. So he said goodbye very politely to the bicoloured python rock snake and helped to coil him up on the rock again and went on a little warm but not at all astonished, eating melons and throwing the bits about because he could not pick it up till he trod on what he thought was a log of wood at the very edge of the great grey green greasy Limpopo River all set about with fever trees. But it was the... It was the crocodile, oh best beloved, and the crocodile winked one eye like this. And I'm winking, but obviously you can't see. Wink. Excuse me, said the elephant's child most politely, but do you happen to have seen a crocodile in these promiscuous parts? The crocodile winked the other eye, which you can't see, and lifted half his tail out of the mud, and the elephant's child stepped back most politely because he did not wish to be spanked again. 
there, little one, said the crocodile. Why do you ask such things? Uh, excuse me, said the elephant's child most politely, but my father has spanked me, my mother has spanked me, not to mention my tall aunt, the ostrich, and my tall uncle, the giraffe, who can kick ever so hard, as well as my broad aunt, the hippopotamus, and my hairy uncle, the baboon, and including the bi-coloured python rock snake with the scalesome, flailsome tail just up the bank, whose back's harder than any of them. And so, if it's quite all the same to you, I don't want to be spanked any more. Oh, bless him. He's such a cutie. Come hither, little one, said the crocodile, for I am the crocodile. And he wept crocodile tears to show it was quite true. Then the elephant's child grew all breathless and panted and kneeled down on the bank and said, You are the very person I've been looking for all these long days. Will you please tell me what you have for dinner? Come hither, little one, said the crocodile, and I'll whisper. Then the elephant's child put his head down close to the crocodile's musky, dusky mouth, and the crocodile caught him by his little nose, which up to that very week, day, hour, and minute had been no bigger than a boot, though much more useful. I think, said the crocodile, and he said it between his teeth like this, I think today I will begin with Elephant's Child. At this, O oh best beloved, the elephant's child was much annoyed, and he spe said, speaking through his nose, like this. Let go! You are hurting me! And the bicoloured python rock snake scuffled down from the bank and said, My young friend, if you do not know immediately and instantly, Pull as hard as ever you can. It is my opinion that your acquaintance in the large pattern leather ulster, and by this he meant the crocodile, will jerk you into yonder limpid stream before you can say Jack Robinson. This is the way bicoloured python rock snakes always talk. Then the elephant's child sat back on his little haunches and pulled and pulled and pulled and his nose began to stretch and the crocodile floundered into the water making it all creamy with great sweeps of his tail and he pulled and pulled and pulled and the elephant's child's nose kept on stretching and stretching and stretching and the elephant's child spread all his little four legs and pulled and pulled and pulled and his nose kept on stretching and the crocodile threshed his tail like an oar and he pulled and pulled and with each pull the elephant's child's nose grew longer and longer and it hurt him he just then the elephant's child felt his legs slipping and he said through his nose, which was now nearly five feet long, This is too much for me. Then the bicoloured python rock snake came down from the bank and knotted himself in a double clove hitch around the elephant's child's hind legs and said, Rash and inexperienced traveller. 
we will now seriously devote ourselves to a little high tension because if we do not it is my impression that yonder self-propelling man of war with the armor plates in its upper deck and by this oh best beloved he meant the crocodile will permanently vitiate your future that is the way all bicolored python rock snakes always talk. So he pulled, and the elephant's child pulled, and the crocodile pulled, but the elephant's child and the bicolored python rock snake pulled hardest. And at last, the crocodile let go of the elephant's child's nose with a plop that you could hear all up and down the Limpopo. Then the elephant's child sat down most hard and sudden, but first he was careful to say, thank you to the bi-coloured python rock snake and next he was kind to his poor pulled nose and wrapped it all up in cool banana leaves and hung it in the great grey green greasy limpopo to cool. What are you doing that for? said the bi-coloured python rock snake. Excuse me, said the elephant's child, but my nose is badly out of shape and I am waiting for it to shrink. Long time, said the bicolored python rock snake. Some people do not know what is good for them. The elephant's child sat there for three days waiting for his nose to shrink, but it never grew any shorter, and besides, it made him squint. For, oh best beloved, you will see and understand that the crocodile had pulled it out into a really, truly trunk, same as all elephants have today. At the end of the third day, a fly came and stung him on the shoulder, and before he knew what he was doing, he lifted up his trunk and hit that fly dead with the end of it. Vantage number one, said the bi-coloured python rock snake. You couldn't have done that with a mere smear of nose. Try and eat a little Before he thought what he was doing, the elephant's child put out his trunk and plucked a large bundle of grass, dusted it clean against his forelegs and stuffed it into his own Vantage number two, said the bicolored python rock snake. You couldn't have done that with a mere smear nose. Don't you think the sun is very hot here? It is, said the elephant's child, and before he thought what he was doing, he slooped up a sloop of mud from the banks of the great grey green greasy Limpopo and slapped it on his head where it made a cool sloopy slushy mud cap all trickly behind his ears. Vantage number three, said the bi-coloured python rock snake. You couldn't have done that with a mere smear. Now how do you feel about being spanked again? Um, excuse me, said the elephant's child, but I should not like it at all. How 
would you like to spank somebody? said the bicoloured python rock snake. I should like it very much indeed, said the elephant's child. Well, said the bicoloured python rock snake, you will find that new nose of yours very useful to spank people with. Thank you, said the elephant's child. I'll remember that. And now I think I'll go home to all my dear families and try. So the elephant's child went home across Africa, frisking and whisking his trunk. When he wanted fruit to eat, he pulled down fruit from a tree, instead of waiting for it to fall as he used to. When he wanted grass, he plucked grass up from the ground, instead of going down on his knees as he used to do. When the flies bit him, he broke off the branch of a tree and used it as a fly whisk, and he made himself a new cool slushy squashy mud cap whenever the sun was hot. When he felt lonely, walking through Africa, he sank to himself down his trunk and the noise was louder than several brass bands. He went especially out of his way to find a broad hippopotamus. She was no relation of his and he spanked her very hard to make sure that the bicoloured python rock snake had spoken the truth about his new trunk. The rest of the time, he picked up the melon rinds that he had dropped on his way to the Limpopo, for he was a tidy pachyderm. One dark evening, he came back to all his dear families and he coiled up his trunk and said, How do you do? They were very glad to see him and immediately said, Come here and be spanked for your satiable curiosity. Pooh, said the elephant's child. I don't think you people know anything about spanking, but I do, and I'll show you. Then he uncurled his trunk and knocked two of his dear brothers head over heels. Oh, bananas, said they. Where did you learn that trick? And what have you done to your nose? I got a new one from the crocodile on the banks of the great grey green greasy Limpopo River, said the elephant's child. I asked him what he had for dinner and he gave me this to keep. It looks very ugly, said his hairy uncle the baboon. It does, said the elephant's child, but it's very useful. And he picked up his hairy uncle the baboon by one hairy leg and hove him into a hornet's nest. Then that bad elephant's child spanked all his dear families for a long, long time till they were very warm and greatly astonished. He pulled out his tall ostrich aunt's tall feathers, tail feathers, and he caught his tall uncle the giraffe by the hind leg and dragged him through a thorn bush and he shouted at his broad aunt the hippopotamus and blew bubbles into her ear when she was sleeping in the water after meals, but he never let anyone touch the colo colo bird. At last things grew so exciting that his dear families went off one by one in a hurry to the banks of the great grey green greasy Limpopo River, all set about with fever trees to borrow new noses from the crocodile. When they came back, nobody spanked anybody anymore, and ever since that day, oh blessed beloved, all the elephants you will ever see, besides all those that you won't, have trunks precisely like the trunk of the satiable elephant's trunk. And that, boys and girls, and boys and girls' mums and dads, is the end of this utterly, utterly wonderful story called The Elephant's Child, which is one of the wonderful story collection from the Just So Stories of Rudyard Kipling.
I hope you enjoyed that. Oh my God, I enjoyed this so much. Please don't go spanking each other because although it's not as um, grave as uh, as um, as slapping uh, or, or hitting, please don't do that. Um, it's obviously not a very nice thing to do without any provocation. So on that note, I would love to wish you all a wonderfully pleasant evening. I'm so happy to see that the days are already becoming a, a little longer. It's quarter to five and it is yet not fully dark. So that is marvelous, isn't it? To see that the days are becoming longer and we're one day closer to the advent of spring. So wherever you are in this wildly, wonderfully beautiful world, I wish you a pleasant evening or a pleasant night or a wonderful day or a morning, whatever it is that you're doing or wherever you are. Um, and whenever you listen to the story, I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed reading it to all of you. And to you, Sonia, I hope this makes you feel better. I know it's a kiddie story, but I also know that it is something so fun and so uplifting and something that only Rudyard Kipling can do. So lots of love, lots of love to everybody out there. And I hope you keep safe. I hope you read lots. I hope you drink lots of water, stay hydrated. And I hope that your lives are full of the wonder of joy and love. All my love. Toodles. It's always with my daughter, Annika, that I um, read my stories. But I thought that I'd start doing this in the day um, so that we can have a different mood to these stories. So, continuing on with my theme and love and fascination for Rudyard Kipling, yesterday I read all about how the elephant got its trunk. The elephant's child, it was called, and I enjoyed it because I certainly did when I was reading it and I couldn't help but marvel at Rudyard Kipling's imagination and the way he told these stories to, to his little daughter. I could almost imagine it. It's so wonderfully written. And today, um, because we are on the, uh, the theme of the Just So stories, which as you might recall, got its name because his daughter said she wanted the stories told to her Just So. So no edits in the way things were said to her. It was the kind of language that she knew and loved and understood. And isn't that amazing? If everything we spoke and did was just so, just so, wouldn't life be lovely? 
without further ado, um, today I am going to read about how the leopard got his spots. And the story goes, in the days when everybody started fair, best beloved, the leopard lived in a place called the High Veldt. Remember, it wasn't the Low Veldt or the Bush Veldt or the Sour Veldt, but the exclusively bare, hot, shiny High Veldt, where there was sand and sandy coloured rock and exclusively tufts of sandy yellowish grass. The giraffe and the zebra and the eland and the kudu and the hart beast lived there, and they were exclusively sandy yellow brownish all over, but sandiest, yellowish, brownest of them all, a greyish, yellowish, khaki-shaped kind of beast and he matched the exclusively yellowish, greyish, brownish colour of the high belt to one hair. This was very bad for the giraffe and the zebra and the rest of them, for he would lie down by exclusively yellowish, greyish, brownish stone or clump of grass and when the giraffe or the zebra or the eland or the kudu or the bushbuck or the bontebuck came by, he would surprise them out of their jumps and lives. He would indeed. And also, there was an Ethiopian with bows and arrows, an exclusively greyish, brownish, yellowish man he was then, who lived on the high belt with the leopard, and the two used to hunt together. The Ethiopian with his bows and arrows, and the leopard exclusively with his teeth and claws, till the giraffe and the eland and the kudu and the quagga and all the rest of them didn't know which way to jump. Best beloved, they didn't indeed. You remember Rudyard Kipling called his lovely little daughter Josephine, best beloved. Isn't that adorable? After a long time, things lived for ever so long in those days, they learned to avoid anything that looked like a leopard or an Ethiopian, and bit by bit, the giraffe began it, because his legs were the longest, they went away from the high belt. They scuttled for days and days and days till they came to a great forest, exclusively full of trees and bushes and stripy, speckly, batchy, blatchy shadows, and there they hid. And after another long time, what with standing half in the shade and half out of it, and what with the slippery, slidey shadows of the trees falling on them, the giraffe grew blotchy, and the zebra grew stripy, and the eland and the kudu grew darker, with little wavy grey lines on their backs like bark on a tree trunk. And so, though you could hear them and smell them, you could very seldom see them. And then only when you knew precisely where to look. speckly spickly shadows of the forest, while the leopard and the Ethiopian ran about over the exclusively greyish, yellowish, reddish high veld outside, wondering where all their breakfasts and their dinners and their teas had gone. At last they were so hungry that they ate rats and beetles and rock rabbits, the leopard and the Ethiopian, and then they had the big tummy ache both together, and then they met Babian, the dog-headed, barking baboon, who was quite the wisest animal all the game gone. And Babian winked. He knew, said the Ethiopian to Babian. Can you tell me the present habitat of the Aboriginal fauna? That meant just the same thing, but the Ethiopian always used long words. He was a grown-up, you see. And Babian winked. He knew. Then said Babian, the game has gone into other spots, and my advice to you, Leopard, is to go into other spots as soon as you can. And the Ethiopian said, that is all very fine, but I wish to know whether the Aboriginal fauna has migrated. 
insect babia. The Aboriginal fauna has joined the Aboriginal flora because it was high time for a change and my advice to you, Ethiopian, is to change as soon as you can. That puzzled the leopard and the Ethiopian no end, but they set off to look for the Aboriginal flora and presently, after ever so many days, they saw a great high, tall forest full of tree trunks, all exclusively speckled and sprottled and spotted, dotted and splashed and slashed and hatched and cross-hatched with shadows. Say that quickly and loud and you will see how very shadowy the forest must have been. What is this, said the leopard, that is so exclusively dark and yet so full of little pieces of light? I don't know, said the Ethiopian, but it ought to be the Aboriginal flora. I can smell giraffe, and I can hear giraffe, but I can't see giraffe. Hmm, that's curious, said the leopard. I suppose it is because we have just come in out of the sunshine. I can smell zebra, and I can hear zebra, but I can't see zebra. Wait a bit, said the Ethiopian. It's a long time since we've hunted them. Perhaps we've forgotten what they were like. Fiddle, said the leopard. I remember them perfectly in the high belt, especially their marrow bones. Giraffe is about 17 feet high, of an exclusively fulvous golden yellow from head to heel, and zebra is about four and a half feet high, of exclusively grey fawn colour from head to heel. Looking into the speckly, speckly shadows of the Aboriginal flora forest. Then they ought to show up in this dark place like ripe bananas in a smokehouse. But they didn't. The leopard and the Ethiopian hunted all day, and though they could smell them and hear them, they never saw one of them. For goodness sake, said the leopard at tea time, let us wait till it gets dark. This daylight hunting is a perfect scandal. So they waited till dark, and then the leopard heard something breathing sniffily in the starlight that fell all stripy through the branches and he jumped at the noise and it smelt like zebra and it felt like zebra and when he knocked it down it kicked like zebra but he couldn't see it. So he said, be quiet oh you person without any form. I'm going to sit on your head till the morning because there is something about you that I don't quite understand. Presently, he heard a grunt and a crash and a scramble, and the Ethiopian called out, I've caught a thing that I can't see. It smells like giraffe, and it kicks like giraffe, but it hasn't any form. Don't you trust it, said the leopard. Sit on its head till the morning, same as me. They haven't any form, any of them. So they sat down on them, hard till bright morning time. And then leopard said, What have you at your end of the table, brother? Ethiopian scratched his head and said it ought to be exclusively a rich fulvous orange tawny from head to heel and it ought to be giraffe but it is covered all over with chestnut blotches. What have you at your end of the table brother? And the leopard scratched his head and said "Mm, it ought to be exclusively a delicate greyish fawn and it ought to be zebra but it's covered all over with black and purple stripes. What in the world have you been doing to yourself zebra? Don't you know that if you were on the high belt I could see you ten miles off? You haven't any form. Yes, said the zebra, but this isn't the high belt, can't you see? I can now, said the leopard, but I couldn't at all yesterday. How is this done? Let us off, said the zebra, and we will show you. They let the zebra and the giraffe get up, and zebra moved away to some little thorn bushes where the sunlight fell all stripy, and giraffe moved up to some tallish trees where the shadows fell all blotchy. Now watch, said the zebra and the giraffe. This is the way it's done. 
one, two, three. And where's your breakfast? Leopard stared, and Ethiopian stared, but all they could see were stripy shadows and blotched shadows in the forest, but never a sign of zebra and giraffe. They had just walked off and hidden themselves in the shadowy forest. <gasps> hey, hey, said the Ethiopian. That's a trick worth learning. Take a lesson by it, leopard. You show up in this dark place like a bar of soap in a cold scuttle. Ho, ho, said the leopard. Would it surprise you very much to know that you show up in this dark place like a mustard plaster on a sack of coals? Well, calling names won't catch a dinner, said the Ethiopian. The long and the little of it is that we don't match our backgrounds. I'm going to take Bobbian's advice. He told me I ought to change, and as I've nothing to change except my skin, I'm going to change that. What to? said the leopard, tremendously excited. To a nice working blackish-brownish colour with a little purple in it and touches of slaty blue, it will be the very thing for hiding in hollows and behind trees. So he changed his skin, then and there, and the leopard was more excited than ever. He had never seen a man change his skin before. But what about me? he said, when the Ethiopian had worked his last little finger into his fine new black skin. You take Bavian's advice too. He told you to go into spots. So I did, said the leopard. I went into other spots as fast as I could. I went into this spot with you, and a lot of good that has done me. Oh, <laughs> said the Ethiopian. Bavian didn't mean spots in South Africa. He meant spots on your skin. Well, what's the use of that, said the leopard. Think of giraffe, said the Ethiopian. Or, if you prefer stripes, think of zebra. They find the spots and stripes give them perfect satisfaction. <laughs> um, said the leopard. I wouldn't look like zebra, not for ever so. Well, make up your mind, said the Ethiopian, because I'd hate to go hunting without you. But I must if you insist on looking like a sunflower against a tarred fence. I'll take spots then, said the leopard, but don't make them ever too vulgar big. I wouldn't look like giraffe, not for ever so. I make them with the tips of my fingers, said the Ethiopian. There's plenty of black left on my skin still. Stand over. Then the Ethiopian put his five fingers close together. There was plenty of black left on his new skin still and pressed them all over the leopard. And wherever the five fingers touched, they left little black marks five all close together. You can see them on any leopard skin you like, best beloved. Sometimes the fingers slipped and the marks got a little blurred, but if you look closely at any leopard now, you will see that there are always five spots off five fat black fingertips. Now you are a beauty, said the Ethiopian. You can lie out on the bare ground and look like a heap of pebbles. You can lie out on the naked rocks and look like a piece of pudding stone. You can lie out on a leafy branch and look like sunshine sifting through the leaves. And you can lie right across the centre of a path and look like mm, nothing in particular. Think of that and purr. So they went away and lived happily ever afterward. Best beloved, that is all. Oh, now and then you will hear grown-ups say, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? <laughs> oh dear, apologies. That is uh, khichdi being cooked. Do you know what khichdi is, boys and girls? Khichdi is a combination of rice and lentils, dal together. 
and it's a very yummy, very wholesome, very lovely one pot dish. So that is what I'm going to be having, uh, we're going to be eating tonight. And that is what is cooking and that was the pressure cooker. Uh, where were we? Oh, now and then you will hear grown-ups say, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? I don't think even grown-ups would keep on saying such a silly thing if the leopard and the Ethiopian hadn't done it once, do you? But they will never do it again, best beloved. They are quite contented as they are. I am the most wise Barbian, saying in most wise terms, let us melt into the landscape. Just us two by our loans. People have come in a carriage calling that mummy is there. Yes, I can go if you take me. Nurse says she don't care. Let's go up to the pigsties and sit on the farmyard rails. Let's say things to the bunnies and watch them skitter their tails. Let's, oh, anything, Daddy, so long as it's you and me and going truly exploring and not being into tea. Here's your boots, I've bought them, and here's your cap and stick, and here's your pipe and tobacco. Oh, come along out of it, quick. And that, best beloveds, is the end of this lovely heartwarming story about why the leopard spots. Right? Wasn't that an absolutely lovely, or rather how the leopard got his spots. And of course, a little bit about the Ethiopian changing their skin. And I want you all to know that this, when, when Rudyard Kipling talked about it, can you see that the way he talked about the skin and the way he talked about color did not, did not come out in a um, derogatory or uh, demeaning or um, insensitive kind of a way. It was a really beautiful way of showing how different people have different color skins and why. So I thought it's an ingenious way of putting this thing together. Um, and of course, that little twist at the end where it's uh, it's a little banter between, between uh, uh, dad and daughter talking about just a little get together with, uh, with him and going out having fun and being back at tea so just a little bit of, of fun banter between them uh, fun banter sounds like chai tea dreadful because it means the same thing sort of so no just a little bit of banter between them um, so yes boys and girls and moms and dads of boys and girls I hope you enjoyed that because I certainly did and I'm learning every single day as I read more and more of these stories are you noticing also that he uses he's got this this beautiful way of, of talking which is in you know, a splitchy splotchy splotchy and blitchy blatchy blotchy and the way and you'll also find that in guess who who else's stories do you find that in can you tell me can you tell me I think you know but we can talk about it in the next story that I'm going to record. For now, I wish you a beautiful day. If you are anywhere in uh, this part of the world, I hope you're going out and getting some sunshine because who knows how long it'll last, right? Uh, and if you're anywhere else and it's warm, then please stay cool, stay hydrated, stay, stay safe, mask up, and keep reading, keep listening, keep your minds open and your hearts open. And I wish you the most wonderful, Wonderful day and week ahead. Toodles!
Hello, hello, boys and girls and mums and dads. Hope you're all very, very well. Welcome back to another edition of the stories we tell with me, Ridula, or Ruby, as you know me. And I am continuing with my lovely series, The Just So Stories by Rudyard Kipling, which I cannot get enough of. So whilst my energy levels and motivation levels are really, really high, I thought I will make the most of it and continue with this um, renewed vigor and zeal that I have. So we've talked about the elephant's child, which is how the elephant got its trunk. We've talked about how the leopard got its spots. And today we are going to find out how the camel got his hump. So, without further ado, here is the How the Camel Got His Hump story from the Just So Stories by Rudyard Kipling, which are the lovely stories he invented for his daughter um, as part of a bedtime routine. So, here goes How the Camel Got His Hump. Now, This is the next tale, and it tells how the camel got his hump. In the beginning of years, when the world was so new and all, and the animals were beginning to work for man, there was a camel, and he lived in the middle of a howling desert because he did not want to work. And besides, he was a howler himself. So he ate sticks and thorns and tamarisks and milkweed and prickles, most excruciatingly idle, and when anybody spoke to him, he said, Humph! Just humph! And no more. Presently, the horse came to him on Monday morning with a saddle on his back and a bit in his mouth and said, Camel, oh camel, come out and trot like the rest of us. Humph! said the camel, and the horse went away and told the man. Presently, the dog came to him with a stick in his mouth and said, Woof! Camel, oh camel, woof, woof! Come and fetch and carry like the rest of us, woof, woof! Humph! said the camel, and the dog went away and told the man. Presently, the ox came to him with the yoke on his neck and said, Camel, oh camel, come and plough like the rest of us. Humph! said the camel, and the ox went away and told the man. At the end of the day, the man called the horse and the dog and the ox together and said, 303, I'm very sorry for you with the world so new and all, but that humph thing in the desert can't work or he would have been here by now. So I'm going to have to leave him alone and you must work double time to make up for it. That made the three very angry with the world so new and all and they held a palava and an indaba and a panchayat and a powwow on the edge of the desert and the camel came chewing on milkweed most excruciatingly idle and laughed at them. Then he said, humph, and went away again. Presently, there came along the jinn in charge of all deserts. Jinn, boys and girls, is not... Um, a drink, as you might think, or mums and dads who are listening to this, this is not that gin, but gin, as in the spirit, the genie, as it were, rolling in a cloud of dust. Jinns always travel that way because it is magic. And he stopped to palava and powwow with the three. 
Jinn of all deserts, said the horse, is it right for anyone to be idle with the world so new and all? Certainly not, said the Jinn. Well, said the horse, there's a thing in the middle of your howling desert and he's a howler himself with a long neck and long legs and he hasn't done a stroke of work since Monday morning. He won't trot, said the Jinn, whistling. Ah, that's my camel for all the gold in Arabia. What does he say about it? Woof, he says humph, said the dog, and woof, he won't fetch and carry. Hmm, does he say anything else? Only humph, and he won't plough, said the ox. Very good, said the djinn. I'll humph him if you will kindly wait a minute. Then the djinn rolled himself up in his dust cloak and took a bearing across the desert and found the camel most excruciatingly idle, looking at his own reflection in a pool of water. My long and bubbling friend, said the djinn, what's this I hear of you doing no work with the world so new and all? Humph, said the camel. The djinn sat down with his chin in his hand and began to think a great magic while the camel looked at his own reflection in the pool of water. You've given the three extra work ever since Monday morning, all on account of your excruciating idleness, said the djinn. And he went on thinking magic with his chin in his hand. Humph, said the camel. I shouldn't say that again if I were you, said the djinn. You might say it once too often. Bubbles, I want you to work. And the camel said, humph, again. But no sooner had he said it than he saw his back that he was so proud of puffing up and up and up into a great big lolloping humph. Do you see that? said the djinn. That's your own, very own humph that you've brought upon your very own self by not working. Today is Thursday and you've done no work since Monday when the work began. Now you are going to work. How can I? said the camel. With this humph on my back? That's made a purpose, said the djinn. All because you missed those three days. You will be able to work now for three days without eating because you can live on your humph. And don't you ever, ever say that I did nothing for you. Come out of the desert and go to the three and behave. Humph yourself. And the camel humphed himself, humph and all, and went away to join the three. And from that day to this, the camel always wears a humph. Of course, we call it hump now, not to hurt his feelings, but he has never yet caught up with the three days that he missed at the beginning of the world. And he has never yet learned how to behave. The camel's hump in it is an ugly hump, which well you may see at the zoo, but uglier yet is the hump we get from having too little to do. 
kettles and grown-ups to ooh, 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 if we haven't enough to do ooh, 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 ooh. We get the hump, camellia's hump, the hump that is black and blue. We climb out of bed with a frowsly head and a snarly, yearly voice. We shiver and scowl and we grunt and growl at our bath and our boots and toys. There ought to be a corner for me and I know there is one for you. When we get the hump, oh hump, the camellia's hump, camellia's hump, the hump that is black and blue, the cure for this ill is not to sit still or frowst with a book by the fire but to take a large hoe and a shovel also and dig till you gently perspire and then you will find that the sun and the wind and the gin of the garden too have lifted the hump the horrible hump the hump that is black and blue black and 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 blue i get is as i get it as well as you Ooh, 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 ooh. If I haven't enough to do, ooh, 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 ooh. we all get hump, the big, big hump, camellia's hump, a oh, humpy hump. We all get camellia's hump, kittles and grown-ups too. <laughs> okay, that was a very, very, very bad tune for something that was very adorable, but that's the best I could do for now. Um, well, boys and girls, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, certainly, I hope you enjoyed it uh, even a little bit as much as I enjoyed saying it. Um, and that was how the camel got his hump. But since this was a very short story, we're going to add another one. And that one is how the rhinoceros got his skin. So, shall we start? How the rhinoceros got his skin. Once upon a time, on an uninhabited island on the shores of the Red Sea, there lived a Parsi. Now, let me tell you something about the Parsis. And this is not um, Mr. Kipling talking, this is me talking. The Parsis came from Persia and they settled in, uh, in India. There goes a story that when they came, they told the local people that why don't you get um, a cup of milk or water? And then they added some sugar to it. And as you know, if you blend the sugar into water or milk, it seamlessly blends in and there's no sign that there's a lump of sugar at the end of it. And that's how they said they would be. They said they would embrace the local traditions and they would blend into and become one of the locals. And this is what they did wherever the Parsis went. They integrated with everybody and only gave back wonderful and brilliant things. So a wonderful, loving, um, beautiful and uh, loyal community. Um, the Parsis and also very hardworking, very enterprising. A lot of businesses started by them um, and gave back always to the community they lived in. Also, they adopted the language, so they did incredible things. And so this is the story of um, the Parsis or a Parsi that uh, Mr. Kipling is talking about. Once upon a time, on an uninhabited island on the shores of the Red Sea, there lived a Parsi, from whose hat the rays of the sun were reflected in more than oriental splendour. 
and the Parsi lived by the Red Sea with nothing but his hat and his knife and a cooking stove of the kind that you must particularly never touch. And one day he took flour and water and currants and plums and sugar and things and made himself one cake which was two feet across and three feet thick. It was indeed a superior comestible, that's magic, and he put it on the stove because he was allowed to cook on the stove and he baked it and he baked it till it was all done brown and smelt most sentimental. But just as he was going to eat it, there came down to the beach from the altogether uninhabited interior one rhinoceros with a horn on his nose, two piggy eyes and very few manners. In those days, the rhinoceros' skin fitted him quite tight. There were no wrinkles in it anywhere. He looked exactly like Noah's Ark rhinoceros, but of course much bigger. All the same, he had no manners then, and he has no manners now, and he never will have any manners. He said, how? And the Parsi left that cake and climbed to the top of a palm tree with nothing on but his hat. from which the rays of the sun were always reflected in more than oriental splendour. And the rhinoceros upset the oil stove with his nose and the cake rolled on the sand and he spiked that cake on the horn of his nose and he ate it and he went away waving his tail to the desolate and exclusively uninhabited interior which abuts on the islands of Mazenderan, Socotra and the promontories of the larger equinox. Then the Parsi came down from his palm tree and put the stove on its legs and recited the following shloka, which, as you have not heard, I will now proceed to relate. Them that takes cakes, which the Parsi man bakes, makes dreadful mistakes. And there was a great deal more in that than you would think. Because five weeks later there was a heat wave in the Red Sea and everybody took off all the clothes they had. The Parsi took off his hat, but the rhinoceros took off his skin and carried it over his shoulder as he came down to the beach to bathe. In those days it buttoned underneath with three buttons and looked like a waterproof. He said nothing whatsoever about the Parsi's cake because he had eaten it all and he never had any manners then, since or henceforward. He waddled straight into the water and blew bubbles through his nose, leaving his skin on the beach. Presently the Parsi came by and found the skin and he smiled one smile that ran all around his face two times. Then he danced three times around the skin and rubbed his hands. Then he went to his camp and filled his hat with cake crumbs for the Parsi never ate anything but cake and never swept out his camp. He took that skin and he shook that skin and he scrubbed that skin and he rubbed that skin just as it was full of old dry stale tickly cake crumbs and some burned currants as ever it could possibly hold. Then he climbed to the top of his palm tree and waited for the rhinoceros to come out of the water and put it on. And the rhinoceros did. He buttoned it up with three buttons and it tickled like cake crops in bed. Then he wanted to scratch, but that made it worse. And then he lay down on the sands and rolled and rolled and rolled. And every time he rolled, the cake crumbs tickled him worse and worse and worse. Then he ran to the palm tree and rubbed and rubbed and rubbed himself against it. He rubbed so much and so hard that he rubbed his skin into a great fold over his shoulders and another fold underneath where the buttons used to be. But he rubbed the buttons off and he rubbed some more folds over his legs. 
and it spoiled his temper, but it didn't make the least difference to the cake crumbs. They were now inside his skin and they tickled. So he went home very angry indeed and horribly scratchy. And from that day to this, every rhinoceros has had great folds in his skin and a very bad temper, all on account of the cake crumbs inside. But the Parsi came down from his palm tree, wearing his hat, from which the rays of the sun were reflected in more than oriental splendor, packing up his cooking stove and went away in the direction of Orotava, Amidala, the upland meadows of Anantarivo and the marshes of Sonapat. And that, boys and girls, is how the rhinoceros got his rough, prickly, tickly scrubbly bubbly skin well we've had two stories today about um, how the um, rhinoceros got his skin and how the camel got his hump and there's going to be many more to come from this delightful connection connection collection called the just so stories by Rudyard Kipling which I am so delighted to be reading and I'm so thrilled to have the privilege to do um, and guess what the sun's out just as in as an answer to what I'm saying where it's all full of hope and wonderment and joy the sun is out we don't know for how long uh, here in the UK but in London right now the sun is out so just as I am filled with hope and joy I wish that all your lives are filled with just the same hope and joy and if it's dark may you find your own little spots um, of light and joy um, if it's too bright I hope you can wear your shades to make it more bearable uh, but remember keep shining because no one can ever tell you that you're shining bright enough you all deserve to shine and you all deserve to be hopeful and happy and um, filled with excitement for everything that every day is going to bring your way on that note, I'd like to wish you all a wonderful day ahead. Um, I'm hoping that one of these days I will get back to my rhythm of also doing a nighttime story. Um, I'm sure it will, but until I get that rhythm back, I'm going to leave you with a um, have a lovely day. Stay safe, mask up, um, stay hydrated, read a lot, listen to a lot of stories, listen to music, stay joyful and always have a smile on your face. Toodles! Thank you.